Praise God. Thank you for your prayers. I need it as we're getting into this really challenging section of the book of Daniel. As uh, Caleb said, my name is Daniel, and uh, I am so excited to be in this book with you. I, Daniel has been such a profoundly important book in my life, and uh, I, I just feel like God has blessed us a ton since we've been in it. Have you guys been blessed by Daniel? Yeah. It's so good. So uh, I am just, I'm super eager. Last week, Pastor Dale, who's the newest addition to our team, so excited for that. <laughs> he reminded us that God wins. He reminded us that God is unquestionably supreme over all, including both seen and unseen. God is sovereign over all things. And he reminded us that the, the, the reason that's so important is because we need wind in our sails to keep on when we suffer. Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, he needed to believe that God wins. He needed to know that. And indeed, we have reason to hope in him, even in our suffering, right? Amen. God wins. But God's people still face trials, right? We, we, still, we still wake up finding ourselves, even after we hear that message preached, you know, God wins. I felt so I felt so empowered. I left feeling so excited. And yet, you know, you go home and you feel the pain of life, the trials, the burdens, that, that our world is divided, that we still have unsaved family members and friends, that, you know, for some of you it might be, I'm still unmarried, I'm still jobless. I still don't have the kids that we've been praying for. You know, these these burdens, they, they continue to remain. Daniel himself, he was delivered from the lion's den, but you'll, you'll know that he, he was still in Babylon for some time after that. He still was not in his homeland where he was able to worship at the temple. So some of us may have heavy hearts today. Some of us need our hope restored. And I just want to say that across human history, God has I'm sorry, Daniel and, and all of us have needed at times our hope to be restored. And you know what? God wants to restore your hope. How does he do that? He, he actually shows us our future. He reminds us of the end of the story. So this, this chapter that we just read from is, it is a, a telling of the future. It's been called by some the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. And I want you to know, as we get into really hard books like this, as we or chapters like this, what God is after. God is after your hope. God wants to restore your hope. Why? Because He wants you to endure. We need help in this world that we have been calling Babylon, like our modern Babylon. We need help. And hope is the key to endurance. Quickly, I want to remind you that, that uh, this, is, this is some heavy lifting here. This is a really hard chapter. Has anybody read the book of Daniel before, these chapters? Someone, someone recently said, I can do without that one. And in the book of Revelation too. I don't know, maybe you feel that. But there is so much here for us. So I'm, I'm going to give you a quick roadmap. We're going to pray and then we'll dive into the text. All right? So... Today we're going to see that God knows and he's, he knows the future and is sovereign over it. 
That's what we're going to see first. Secondly, we're going to see that God will give the kingdom to us through Jesus. That's an exciting section. And then finally, we're going to see that even though God's people will be oppressed, Jesus will win in the end. And my main point for you today is this. Hope in the mighty God in spite of your suffering. I'm just going to pray one more time and ask for God's help for this time. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have given us your word. That when we are needy, when we are suffering, you show us where we're headed. God, that is a gift to us. It is a gift to those who are hurting right now. And I ask that it would feel that way to everyone sitting in this room right now. If there's need for healing, if there's need for hope to be restored, if there, if there is uh, brokenness, I know there's brokenness in this room. Would you mend it? Would you heal it? Would you give hope and life and peace? Take away the anxiety. Take away the fear that may be over us today as we hear this promise of our bright future ahead. God, we invite you to move. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's, let's jump into the text. Verse 1. Please follow along in your Bibles. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. Verse 1, chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was laying in bed. And he wrote down the substance of his dream. God was at it again. If you've been following along with us, you'll know that God has spoken to people in dreams over and over again in this book. And what he's doing is he's revealing mysteries about the universe. He's revealing mysteries about the future, what's happening right there through these dreams. And so he was at it again. And he, he, we also know that uh, in, our, in our last sermon, we were in not Belshazzar's reign, but in Darius the Mede's reign. So uh, Belshazzar was uh, judged, but this dream steps back into the first year of Belshazzar's reign in 553 B.C. And we've said this before, but it's good to say it again. This is not a history book primarily that we're getting into, but it's a story about God. It's, a, it's mainly a, a theology book. It's telling us who God is and who we are. And more specifically, it is a prophetic book. The book of Daniel is a prophetic book that reveals mysteries about God in the world. And it's showing us... That behind this world that we see right now is an unseen supernatural realm. This is not all that exists right now. There are God, angels, Satan, demons exist. And ultimately these two realms are working together. They affect one another. And so that's what this book is showing us. Um, chapters 1 to 6 primarily has shown us in story form, that Yahweh is supreme and that he gives favor to those who hope in him. And then chapter 7 to 12, there's a noticeable shift in the sort of literature and the feel of the, the literature. It's, it's, and this is foretelling us how everything is going to play out. It's showing us that God is supreme and that he gives favor to those who hope in him, but it's showing that that's going to continue on through the future for all who are hoping in him. Amen? So you'll notice that Daniel's chapters 7 to 12 don't make too many appearances in Sunday school. 
I don't know if you've heard that one read in Sunday school. You hear lions, you know, Daniel and the lions den over and over and over again. But this is not stuff that makes appearance. Why? Because it's scary. It's, it's really challenging literature. So why is God using this sort of literature to speak to us? So prophetic literature or apocalyptic literature, as some have called it, is, is essentially God's kindness to use human language to, to teach us supernatural truths. He's showing us images. He's showing us pictures, signs to teach us things that are beyond human language. So it's a, it, further than that, it's, it's teaching us the weight and the reality of the facts. It's not just laying out for us fact upon fact, but it's showing us the weight of them. For example, we're going to read in a moment about beasts. Why, is, why are these kingdoms described as beasts? Well, because human kings who act like ravenous animals should be scary to us. They are scary. They, they, are, they cause great harm on the earth. And, and Daniel, our Lord God, actually wants us to feel the weight of it as we get into these pictures. Before we go further into the text, I just want to say one more thing about hermeneutics or the interpretation. How do we interpret apocalyptic literature? Well, I'll say this. Some have tried to interpret these things literally. And I, I just want to say you should not do that. <laughs> if you think you can interpret these literally, you will walk out of here thinking that aliens are going to invade like the movies that you watched last week. Like That's, that's not what this is after. But instead, they're trying to point you to something beyond that image. So the best way to interpret apocalyptic or prophetic literature is with Scripture. Where has God used similar images to teach us theological truths? We'll see some examples as we walk through the text. And one other thing, when we interpret theological, uh, sorry, apocalyptic literature, some of these things we need to hold open-handedly. We cannot say, this is what it is, and there's no other truth. This is, this is exactly how it is. No, we need to hold it open-handedly. We could, I, I'm going to share what I think these things mean, but I, it might not be dead on. So you'll hear me say, I believe, I think this is what it means. But have to hold, hold it open handedly. There's other things in this text that we hold close-handedly. Jesus will reign forever and ever as God and King. Amen? Amen. That is a close-handed issue. So just want to keep that in your mind as we walk through these really challenging texts. All right? You ready to go? Let's get into it. Verse 2 shows us our first point, that God knows the future. Daniel said... This is verse 2. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Okay, already some crazy, scary images. These winds of heaven Daniel sees, I think, are telling us that God is behind this stirring. Winds of heaven. And I think that the great sea, this rough sea that's being stirred up, is talking or is showing us a picture of the turmoil or the chaos of the nations. Where am I getting that? Other places in Scripture talk about the, the nations like that, like Isaiah 17, 12. I'll put the manuscript up online. I might 
There might be a few things you want to look up. So I'll have that up on there for you to, to look through these scriptures. But Isaiah 17, 12 says, Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar. They roar like the roaring of great waters. So you see, the nations are compared to this rough sea. And that is what God is depicting. And if you're, if you're confused already, just keep reading along. There will be some t interpretation by even an angel. Uh, and usually God explains it if you just keep reading along. So out of the turbulent sea came four huge beasts, which we'll see in verse 17 are referring to four kings or kingdoms that would arise on the earth. Okay, so keep that in mind. These are kings arising on earth. Verse 4, read with me. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. This first image is depicting King Nebuchadnezzar and the, the reign of Babylon. We know this because prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they compare the Babylonian kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar to a lion and an eagle. I have a bunch of references that you can check. Its wings were torn off. This points to Nebuchadnezzar's humbling in, J in Daniel chapter 4. If you look back there, because he, was, he exalted himself, God brought him low to the point that he was like a beast for a long time. But we also know from Daniel chapter 4 that God raised him up. He exalted him. He was placed on his feet again and given back his mind. So this is referring to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. But we know this kingdom came to an end, right? Let's see the second beast. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. This beast is referring to the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, Medo-Persia was the, the kingdom that overtook Babylon. It was a dual kingdom. And it says that this bear was, was raised up. It was bigger on one side. One, one uh, pastor called it a lumpy bear. I thought that was pretty good. So this, this lumpy bear uh, was a little bigger because the Persian Empire was quite a bit bigger than the Mede uh, Empire and would ultimately overtake it. But this empire was told to get up and gorge itself. It had three ribs in its mouth, which, which either refers specifically to a few different prominent kingdoms that, that, that this empire would, would overtake, or it's more generally speaking of the insatiable nature of this beast. But this kingdom also came to an end. We know that from history. So the third beast rise up in Daniel's image. Like a movie, he's seeing these different beasts come up in this dream. So verse 6, read along. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. So this beast, I believe, refers to Greece and the reign of Alexander the Great. If you know anything about history, you'll know that, that Alexander conquered great lands at great speeds. Leopards are very fast creatures. They're extra fast if you put wings on their back. <laughs> this 
was a fast beast, and it was conquering with speed, just like Alexander the Great would do. Alexander the Great died young. He didn't have kids, so he gave his reign to four, four people, or, or four, four uh, rulers were given reign after him. Just as this says, the beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. This kingdom also would fall. We know from history and it would fall to the fourth beast. Look at verse 7 with me. After that in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. There's a lot there. But this beast, I believe, refers to the Roman Empire, which was an extremely powerful empire and extremely cruel. It's described here as having large iron teeth that would crush. I believe this is a, a clear parallel to Daniel chapter 2, where, where the Roman Empire, Ross preached on that, that image that Nebuchadnezzar had, and the, 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 the image had feet made of iron and clay. So we see a parallel that, that Rome, the Roman Empire is being compared with this, this iron. So further, the ten horns refer to kings. We, we see that later as the angel kind of lays out the interpretation, and at minimum, this, this 10 number refers to the complete power that the Roman Empire would have. This, this empire would outlast these other kingdoms by far. But I think that this beast, as summarized in verse 8, uh, in following this boastful beast and horn, I think it points to something bigger as well. I think it points to a more cosmic spiritual reality. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more as we look at the angel's interpretation just a little bit further in the text. But ultimately, this vision of the beast, church, is, is retelling a story that's already been told back in chapter 2. It's really just laying out the same story of four kingdoms leading up to Christ. It's the same story with different images. God is showing us that he knows the future. He's laying it out for Daniel. And it's, it's scary, but he's showing him, here's what's to come. If you know your history, you'll know that these exact things, the only reason why I can say things with certainty the way that we are, the reason why that the scholars can, can make these sort of claims about these kingdoms is because this is how it unfolded. This is how history unfolded. God knows the future. Amen? Amen. But the next se section takes that truth a step further. God not only knows the future, he's sovereign over the future. He's sovereign over its events. So let's look at verse 9. As I looked, their uh, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Let's just pause there for a second. This is an amazing image because... We see this, this image of these this turbulent seas, and then all of a sudden, a different image comes up where there's a different set of thrones. 
Yes, these beastly rulers exist. Yes, they're causing great pain and harm on the earth. But there's another throne that people don't see. There's another throne, and guess what? The Ancient of Days takes his seat. The beastly evil rulers of the world only have so much power. There is another throne. The Ancient of Days takes his seat, and, and Daniel, he's actually the only biblical author who, who calls God the Ancient of Days. I love that title. And it's, it's not referring to his age as though God were really, really old. You could say that he was, but it's more speaking to his eternal nature. That he's a God without beginning or end. He is called the Alpha and the Omega in other places. This is God the Father here that's being referenced. The, the ever-existing one. And he's seated on a throne ruling sovereignly over all the kingdoms of the world. Daniel describes him further. Follow along with me. His clothing was as white as snow. His clothing was as white as snow. And I just want to remind you again, this, this is human language trying to capture supernatural reality. So again, I don't know if, if when we think of God, we should think these exact pictures. But instead, this is what God is like. This is, these are things that, that communicate what his attributes, what his, what his character is like. So I think his white clothes point more to his holiness, points more to his purity and to his righteousness than about what exactly he's wearing. We're told the hair of his head was white like wool. I think this points to his eternality and to his purity and wisdom. We're told that his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. I think this points to his purifying and righteous judgment. Daniel Aiken, a, a, a Daniel scholar, points out that the burning wheels likely are showing that God has no spatial limits. His judgment is without limit. He's able to see and know all things. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing coming out from before him. This points to his righteous anger and the wrath of his judgment. And then we're told at the end of verse 10, thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. So innumerable angels are serving this ancient of days. This is very reminiscent of Revelation chapter 4. If you were to look there, you would see a very similar picture where countless beings are worshiping around the throne of this God. The scene moves to action. This Ancient of Days is, we're told, puts court into session. We're, we're told the court was seated and the books were opened. This points to a God, this this phrase the books were open points to a God who is who's not a willy-nilly kind of leader who operates on his feelings what he what he likes and doesn't like no but but a God who is just in his judgment righteous in his judgment purposeful in his judgment God knows all things he has all things recorded and he judges justly according to what he knows verse 11 Let's keep, keep plowing forward. There's so much here. Verse 11 shows us who was about to be judged. Read with me. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn 
uh, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. So we're told that this little boastful horn mentioned in verse 8 comes back into the picture and boasts for a little while until without any challenge, God strikes it down. Just like that. Similarly, the other beasts are stripped of their authority. It says the other beasts had been stripped of their authority. Who is stripping them of their authority? God. The one who rules over all things, the sovereign one, the ancient of days, he is stripping, and he is stripping people of their authority. He's removing the power of the beast. We're seeing the beast who rule the world. We're seeing these, these four rulers. But, but friends, there is a ruler who is a just judge and reigns right now over all the kingdoms of the earth. And he will remove evil powers. Church, we saw that God knows our future, and here this shows us that there, there is a heavenly scene of a God who is seated on his throne, ruling and reigning sovereignly over history. Amen? God not only knows our future, but is ruling over it. This leads us to point three. The sovereign God is going to give authority to the Son of Man. This is an amazing section. Look at verse 13 with me. In my visions at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. I'm just so thankful right now for Jesus. I'm so thankful. This is before anybody knew the name of Jesus, and here Jesus shows up on the scene. I'm getting ahead of my notes, but I'm just moved. One like a son of man takes center stage. One like a son of man takes center stage. He comes in the clouds and is brought before this Ancient of Days figure. The sentence carries amazing meaning. First, that, that, those words, he came with the clouds of heaven, if you know your Bible, you'll know that that's what it's like when God shows up. When God comes to visit man, he usually comes on the clouds. And what are we told? We're told that this, this son of man is coming with the clouds and he's escorted before the, the ancient of days. This is a clear sign that this figure is divine. Secondly, we're told... That he's, he's brought to the Ancient of Days, and we're told that he gives him something. We're going to look at that in just a second, but all of this, I want to remind you, we read Revelation chapter 5. All of this is a prequel to that story, which we know will be much, it's much clearer as it unfolds in Revelation. But that, that book is also an apocalyptic prophecy, which basically unfolds for us what is going to happen in the future. So I, I'm sorry I'm a little jumbled here. I'm getting ahead of my notes. But in that same theme, we see God on his throne, surrounded by innumerable angels, followed by a scene where the Lamb comes and takes the scroll from the Father, right? We just read that. 
And in this scene, we're told that the Son of Man also received something. Read with me, verse 14. He was given what? Dominion. Dominion, authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This God-man who came before the throne was given power and authority, and we're told that all the peoples of the world was going to worship this one. Now, I kind of gave it away a second ago, but we should all be asking, who is this guy? If you don't know this story, if you don't know the story of Christ, if you don't know this gospel, you should be wondering, who is the Son of Man going to be? This is what everyone would have been looking for leading up to Jesus coming on the earth. Who is the Son of Man? Who is this Messiah? Who is worthy of such a kingdom? What, what kind of man could possibly not be corrupted by power and be able to be given by God authority that will last forever and ever and ever? Who could possibly be worthy of that? Couldn't possibly be a man, right? Maybe it's an angel. Maybe it's Gabriel or Michael. Or maybe like the best of the best humans, like Moses. I guess he didn't, he wasn't all that great at the end, but man, who, <laughs> who was it? Like who could it possibly be? About 600 years later, this one who called himself the son of God would show up on the scene and use this title more than any other title. Jesus. He showed up and he called himself the Son of Man more than any other thing. Hi, my name is Daniel. What's your name? Do you like to be called Jesus or you should? No, Son of Man. I like to be called the Son of Man. <laughs> You're the Son of Man. Oh my goodness. There's a reason that Jesus had people against him. They called him blasphemer because he claimed to be the Son of Man. This was a big claim. He was claiming that he was the Messiah, that he was this figure from Daniel chapter 7. Read this all over your New Testament. You'll read these words, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You'll read those words, and that's Jesus signaling to you that he is this figure. Jesus is the Son of Man. And we know him. <laughs> That's amazing, just simply to be able to say, on this side of history, to be able to say, we know who the Son of Man is. We know who the Son of Man is. And friends, if you're in Christ, you know Him personally. That is awesome. That's why we just spent this time worshiping Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb. That is why we said, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Jesus is the Son of Man. But why the Son of Man language? Why, why is such an interesting title? Would you, why does he want to pick that? I was helped by theologian Sinclair Ferguson here. Son of Man, it points to Jesus' humanity generally, right? He's a Son of Man. But it also points particularly to the fact that he, to his role as the true man, like the, the new human. Let's hear what, hear what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, this is the true man 
in contrast to the man become beast in the earlier elements of the vision. This is the one who is able to stand in the presence of God, whose throne is made of the fire of his judgment. This is the one who is worthy to receive dominion and glory in the kingdom. This true man is all that humans in God's image were meant to be, but failed to be. That's what the Son of Man language is getting after. Not just, he's not just a man, he's the true man. You see, this was the offspring promised in Genesis 3, 15. This was the one that we were waiting for. Every other man has fallen short, but God sent the Son. God sent the one who would live the perfect life. Friends, all authority was once handed over to Satan in the garden, but friends, the, the authority is being given back to the Son of Man in Christ Jesus. It's being given back to mankind in Christ Jesus, the true man. You following me? Jesus alone is worthy of this kingdom because he alone obeyed God perfectly. He alone did not get swept up by the cultural lies and by Satan's counterfeit kingdom like we do. He made it to the end. And he died and he rose and he ascended to heaven. And, and at that moment, we know from scriptures that he was given this eternal kingdom. He was already a king, but he had to finish the race. I'll get into that a little bit more, why he was doing that. But friends, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy that, that a man was given the kingdom. Jesus received the kingdom. At this point, we're told in verse 15 that Daniel was a little scared. I'm sure you would be too if you were having that dream. Have you ever had a scary dream? It's a silly thing to ask. Most of us have. But this is like God talking. It's a scary dream and it's God. He's unfolding history. So Daniel, he, he's like, I need somebody to tell me what this means. Somebody, yeah, he asked somebody to help him, and, and someone begins to, to give him the interpretation. I, I presume that this is an angel. How would you like it if you had a scary dream and you wanted to know what it was, and you could just say, hey, please tell me what this is, and an angel starts to unfold the dream for you. I sure would like that. So the angel interprets the dream. Verse 17. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. We talked about that earlier. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Wow. All of that scary imagery, and this is the main point that the angel comes up with? Beasts reign, but God will give the kingdom to the saints of the Most High. Yes, that's the main point. I told you earlier, we get lost in the details sometimes, and we run after all kinds of pictures. But I need you to know, when you're reading these types of books, God is trying to show you simple truths to help you hold fast, to help you hope in Him and endure. That's what God is after here for Daniel and for us. 
but the interpretation seems to have a small discrepancy, right? Like there's this, this son of man gives, is given the kingdom. So why is the angel saying that it's being given to us? Who is it? Who's getting the kingdom? Both of us. The answer is yes. Like we both, Christ gets the kingdom and we get the kingdom. How? How is that possible? The son of man is our representative. The Son of Man, I said it earlier, He is the true man who represents humanity. And because we belong to Jesus, the Son of Man, the kingdom that He receives becomes ours. Hey, surely not talking about Daniel. Like, it couldn't be me that gets this kingdom. It couldn't be us crazies in this room, right? No, it is us! God says the Son of Man is, is given the kingdom, and if you're in the Son of Man, Jesus... The kingdom belongs to you. That's wild. That is it's absolutely crazy. When I read that this week and I was writing these words, I just was like, it can't be. It just can't be. The fact of the matter is that's why this is such good news. That is why this is a gospel of grace because none of us deserve that. But that is what we're told we get as we hold fast to Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. This is truly amazing grace. So this is point four. Jesus gives the kingdom to us. But there's still something troubling Daniel. The fourth beast with the horn that spoke most boastfully was especially troubling. We see that in verses 19 and 20. Daniel says in verse 21 that this horn was, quote, waging war against the holy people and defeating them. That is, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So for sake of time, I'll just quickly summarize verses 23 and 24. But again, it, it basically says this kingdom, this, this last beast, the fourth beast, and the horns, there's, there's something different. This word different keeps coming up. It's different than the other kingdoms. This, this kingdom is going to devour the whole earth. Then ten kings are going to come from this kingdom, and then a different one will arise and subdue three of the kings. There's, there's some sort of progression of rulers, and this little horn comes up and begins to speak boastfully. Look at verse 25, where the angel continues to give his interpretation. This king will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. I hate to say it, but we kind of know it at the same time, but we, we church are going to face oppression. We just heard this amazing news, right? It's, it's sort of like Daniel being delivered from the lion's den. We're like, what? That's incredible. And yet, he's still in the lion's den. Like, he's still in Babylon, right? That's still true of us. Jesus taught that even though he came and the kingdom belongs to him, Matthew 24 says it's not in completion. It's not full until he comes back, right? So this beast, he's, he's oppressing God's people. We're told that this one will try to reshape everything, try to rewrite the laws. 
He'll speak against the Most High. He'll speak against the people of God. He will press them. I said earlier that this image is likely pointing not only to the Roman Empire, but to a more cosmic spiritual reality. I believe that behind these blasphemous, uh, this blasphemous ruler is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's the spirit of the counterfeit kingdom of darkness. It's empowered by Satan and his workers. This kingdom will rise and oppose God's people. I believe it's, it's speaking figuratively of all the kingdoms that oppress God's people. But I think it may also be pointing to something more specific. These are the sort of things that, that are more open-handed, right? Like, I don't know the exact interpretation here, but I'm doing my best. And, and scholars have done their best. So I, I believe that this also points to a final beastly ruler that will come on center stage. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he, he writes this, Before Christ comes, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. I believe that this is pointing to a, a kind of a culmination of evil, a figure, a ruler who will oppress God's people similar to other rulers who have oppressed God's people in the past. Think about Nero. He murdered countless Christians, burnt them at the stake. Think of Hitler. Think of all the Herod who would, just, who would kill, put John the Baptist's head on a platter. These evil rulers are behind them is the spirit of the Antichrist oppressing God's people. But I believe these these evil rulers are only a foreshadowing. They're, a for, they're forerunners of a final evil ruler who will appear in history and oppress God's people. Whether you believe this specifically points to a, to a person, a, a last kind of evil ruler, or to more broadly the, the evil rulers of the earth, two things are sure from Daniel. Number one, we cannot defeat Satan on our own. We cannot. And we're stupid if we try to. There's, there's a belief that, that mankind is, is progressing. The evolution, we're, all, we're getting better and better and better. No way! The beastly rulers here show that. History shows that. We're still aborting babies. There's still sex trafficking and porn reigning over the internet world. There's evil that's corrupting us and making us more beastly all the time. We're not getting better. So why don't we try to get better on our own? The second thing that, that is true here from, from Daniel is that this beast's days are numbered. Amen? Amen? The beast's days are numbered. We're told that this beast will reign for a time, times, and half a time. Verse 25. This could be talking about a three and a half year reign literally, or it may be talking more generally to a time that is that is short, but some, some period of time where, where God's people are going to be oppressed. Ultimately, this shows us 
Daniel saw in his vision that God's people will be oppressed. And it was frightening to Daniel. God's people were oppressed. John the Baptist, Jesus, would be crucified. Like his disciples and the many after whom who would be martyred. All through history, you see stories of people who were oppressed by Satan and his kingdom. But here's the point I want to end on and that Daniel ends on. Friends, Jesus will end will win in the end. Amen? Amen. Jesus will win in the end. Verse 26. Read this out loud with me, if you would, off the screen. Verse 26. Uh, sorry, that's... But the court. Starting at the but the court. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Friends, God will sit on his throne. And he will destroy the beast in his reign. All the evil behind every ruler, behind every nasty, ugly system is going to crumble as God puts it down. Friends, slavery is going to end. Sex trafficking is going to end. Every godless ruler will be brought low. Every evil thing, abortion, everything that we hate, the rebellion in our own hearts, it will be put down forever. Verse 27 says, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him. Verse 28, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Friends, this is the end of the story. What was just written there is the end of the story. Satan and his followers will perish, but those who are with Christ will reign forever with him. Revelation 21 echoes this reality. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Again, the sea is not, doesn't mean that you're not going to get to sit by the beach in the new heavens and new earth. But it's pointing out that this turmoil is going to come to an end. The turmoil, the division, the, the evil rulers are going to come to an end. No more chaotic history ruled by evil beastly rulers. Praise God. Revelation continues. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Those who are victorious will inherit this. Will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Church, if you are in Christ, this is your destiny. This is your destiny. The good news of Jesus Christ doesn't end with forgiven sins, though that is incredible in and of itself. But it goes on to you being sons and daughters, children of the Most High God, who will give, get an inheritance, the same inheritance that Christ won on your behalf. 
This is your destiny. This is the promise that God has made to you. God showed Daniel the end of the story for his hope. He showed him what was to come so that he could have restored hope in the midst of his trials. And I believe that is what God is doing for you today. Some of us, I think, need our hope restored. Around the world, people are oppressed. Right now, in this nation, some of us are oppressed in, in more subtle ways. We're not necessarily being said, uh, we're not being told, reject Christ or die, but we're being told, if you believe the Bible is God's word, you're crazy. We're being made out as fools because of what we believe. I want you to know that you're in a war today, church. Maybe you don't feel oppressed right now by Satan, but I'm telling you that the kingdoms of this world are oppressing God's people, and it's a miracle that you're still Christian. It's a miracle that I'm still Christian today, that you're still Christian. How will we possibly endure all these trials and temptations? What does hope look like today? <laughs> Friends, hope looks like Jesus. Hope, hope looks like the one who has walked this path before us. Hope looks like the one who never failed to hope in God, who never had waning faith. Sure, he was in the garden. He was suffering at the Garden of Gethsemane. But friends, he said, not my will, but yours be done. He put his faith in God. He put his hope in God. Why? For you and me, who fall short, who don't deserve the kingdom of God, who don't have what it takes to overcome Satan and his warriors. Hope looks like Jesus. Hope looks like our forerunner, the one who's gone before us, who has entered into heaven, who died the death we deserve and rose to life. He's seated there, interceding for us. That's what hope looks like. It's not on me. It's not on you. It's not on anything else. It's not on any politician or anything else in this world, but it's on Jesus. That's what hope looks like today. That's what endurance looks like today. Church, this is our hope. Amen? Amen. Jesus. Friends, God knows the future and is sovereign over it. Amen? Isn't that right? God gives us the kingdom through Jesus. Isn't that right? And even though we are oppressed, we're, we're promised that Jesus will end, will in the end win. Amen? Amen? With this, we can face anything, friends. And friends, God doesn't want you just to kind of stumble through this life. He, he wants you to have confidence in this hope. That's why we spend all this time waiting through really hard texts because God wants you to hope in him and to have sure hope, like a confidence that is unshakable. That's what keeps you pressing on in Babylon. That's what keeps you thriving in Babylon, amen? Maybe your heart, so I'll close with this, maybe, maybe you feel an ache in your heart because there's some hope lost, like I said at the beginning. Maybe, maybe it's because you're jobless or, or you're, you're waiting for, for kids still. Some, some things the Lord does not show us our future. He just says, wait. Ask, seek, knock, wait, trust me. There is one thing that he shows us for certain, and that is that all of these good things in this life that we hope for are pointing us 
to the ultimate hope, where we in, will we'll enjoy eternal life with God. All of, the, all, of the, all the things that we hope in today are pointing us to our eternal life with the Father. That is what he would, he would call you to right now in your ache. Hope in me. It's good to hope for these things that I mentioned. It's good for, to hope in these things. But all of it is calling you to hope in eternal life with him. When he's going to wipe away all the pain that you feel. Amen. Let's hope in him. If you're new to all this, maybe you don't know what you believe about Jesus. I think that Jesus would simply call you to stop saluting to the kingdoms of darkness and switch your allegiance to Christ, which is the winning team. So I, I hope that you, you don't think that there's a neutral zone. It's, it's either kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. So I call you to follow Jesus so that you can win the war that you're in. I want to pray and then we'll, we'll worship and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank you that you give us Daniel chapter 7. I thank you that you give us the book of Revelation. I'm grateful, Lord, to know the end of the story. It changes everything. Father, I ask right now, as we worship and as we, as we sing and as we take the Lord's Supper, that our hearts would hope afresh in you. You've shown us the end of the story. You've shown us that you will win, Jesus, in spite of our suffering. So help us, God. Help us to sing with happy hearts at this great reality. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.